want to add my amen to that. Good morning, everyone. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Corright. Um, this morning, we're stepping aside from our Daniel series for one Sunday, and it's my pleasure to introduce a woman who needs no introduction for most of us. She's the daughter of a preacher man. She's married to a preacher man who's right behind me, and she's a preacher herself. Lindsay Sitzma works at MAF, Mission Aviation Fellowship, one of our mission partners. Their headquarters are here in Guelph. She's a project manager and a strategic initiatives person. She has an undergraduate degree in religious studies from McMaster, recently completed a master's in theology from Conrad Grable at the University of Waterloo. She's the mother of Iris, and her greatest ambition is to be on Jeopardy. <laughs> I just learned that this morning. So, Lindsay, we're so glad you're back in the pulpit. We look forward to hearing what God has to say for you. Can I pray for you? Yes. Can I? Absolutely. Okay? Yeah, that's... It's like going to be the Lord's table in a minute, so, it, you know. It's, it's, I think tea, tea. tea is admissible okay, to the Lord's good, table. <laughs> it is a practical table. Okay, yeah. good. Do you want some water, too, or is the tea enough? No, the tea is great, great but thank okay. you. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for Lindsay. Um, we pray that you would speak through her. We ask that your word would continue to be held high among us at court right. It is our authority... And you, as the living word, Lord Jesus, appear among us. You have a message for each one of us today. And I pray that Lindsay would be blessed as she blesses us with the ministry of the word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Courtright. It is so good to be here with you. I don't know about you, but one of the things I've really been thinking about is whenever we hit our post-pandemic world uh, and find whatever our new normal is, one of the things I don't ever want to take for granted again is just the, be the ability to be here together and worshiping God together. And uh, I was thinking about that this morning when I was walking in the building, just how grateful I am uh, that we get to do that, that we get to gather together and worship God together. And uh, as Alex said, this morning we are taking a break from our Daniel series. We're going to be moving backwards in our Bibles a little bit. So if you're one of those people that really likes to be prepared, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 17 this morning. So uh, if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, you can turn there now. Um, a few weeks ago when Alex was speaking, um, he mentioned a, a podcast that has someone, somewhat taken the evangelical Christian world by storm, and it's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it focuses on, as the title very succinctly says, the rise and eventual collapse of the Seattle-based megachurch uh, called Mars Hill that was pastored by Mark Driscoll. And at its height, Mars Hill had about 15,000 members, it had about uh, 15 campuses, and Mark Driscoll's sermons were downloaded in the thousands, if not the hundreds of thousands, every week. And I have to admit, when Justin first told me about that podcast months and months ago, when it first started, I wasn't sure I was going to listen to it. And I had a few reasons for that, but the primary one was, is that I was really concerned that this podcast was going to be critical without being constructive. You know, Mars Hill, it had been closed for years at that point. It was a very painful process um, for everyone who was involved in that. And I was afraid it was going to be kind of a session of, of church bashing, like kicking people while they're down, even if there was a lesson to be learned from that church. But I did listen to it. Justin allayed my fears in that regard. He listened to the first episode first. 
Um, and I have to say, listening to the podcast has actually been an incredible moving experience for me. I've cried in my car several times. That's typically where I listen to it. And I would recommend it to others. In fact, I think there was talks about there being a discussion group potentially about it. So if you're interested in that, um, I think there is going to be something that's done around that. But what I've so appreciated about the podcast is that first and foremost, it is a story about the mystery of God who is at work and moving in broken places. That God is not bound by our successes or our failures, our talents or our inadequacies. And another reason I really appreciate the podcast is, and it's much more applicable to kind of where I'm going to go this morning, is that it takes a really honest look at some of the current issues that are occurring within the church and within Christianity in North America. And that's across denominations, it's across church sizes. But the podcast really uses Mars Hill as a case study. It becomes a mirror through which we have to look at some very significant truths about North American church, both as an institution, but also as a community of believers. And some of the truths and trends it has revealed are really difficult to listen to. And one of the biggest takeaways for me, one of the things that I've been reflecting on the most, is the discussions that Christians live in a world. We live in a world that celebrates fame and celebrity and wealth and success and achievement. And rather than shy away from some of what we would call those secular cultural ideals and pursuits, Christianity and Christians actually often embrace them. They adopt them and they adapt them and they actually make them indicators of God's blessing on something, whether it's someone's life, whether it's a church, whether it's a ministry. And Diane Laneberg, who's a, a Christian psychologist who gets interviewed for the podcast, she shares her fear that Christianity and Christians have ceased to think that the most important thing in our lives is to be like Christ, to model ourselves after him, that we are both to become and to minister to the least of these. And instead of walking the path of Christ, Christians walk the path of the world as a Christian. And rather than the church or Christians being this transformative force in the world, instead we have adopted or adapted, sorry, we have adapted the church and our lives to look more like the world. And we tell ourselves it's okay because we are doing it in the name of Christ. And what that has meant is a devaluation of cultivating a deep, spiritual formation inside of ourselves, deep and allowing deep spiritual transformation to occur. And that was always designed to be part of the Christian walk. And the emphasis has shifted away from incorporating significant cycles of rest and quiet and very private, deep disciplines that are part of our spiritual formation. And of course, that is a broad generalization. Of course it's not all churches, of course it's not all Christians, and it's on a, a sliding scale of severity. But it has really made me think and reflect about what I strive for as a follower of a Christ, about my personal values, and about what I put value in. Am I trying to walk the path of Christ while simultaneously trying to pursue worldly success and achievement? Is that what I spend my time doing? And do I get consumed with that? 
Have I lost the moments and days and seasons of deep spiritual formation work that Christ wants to do in me? The work that Christ is actually probably a little bit more concerned about. Because if I am being honest with myself, and maybe this morning I am only preaching to myself, and if that's the case, I'm okay with that. But I can see the ways in my own life where instead of cultivating the way of Jesus, I am trying to forge my own path. Instead of humility, I want praise. Instead of wanting to serve because I am called, I want to serve so that I can be acknowledged and validated. I have focused on the outer, visible parts of my life getting seen and getting noticed and hoping that this is going to translate into some type of success and independence and security, and I have not always focused on the private, inner path of walking humbly with God, of learning dependency on God, of pursuing a transformed life, which is what he calls me into. And I want to be really clear this morning as we're talking about this is that I don't think popularity and power and influence and money, I don't think they're inherently bad things. And I don't think people who have those things are bad. I don't think it's bad to value people or to validate people or to like when someone appreciates you. I don't think that megachurches are doomed to fail and to fall away from Christ. That's not what I'm trying to say. Because none of these things that we've talked about so far are bad in and of themselves. The problem is the human heart, which lives in constant tension of wanting to be restored to the way we were created to be, living humbly with God in relationship with him, and then wanting to go our own way, going the world's way. We live with this tension inside of us. And this morning, what I want to ask are just some really honest questions. What are we striving for in our lives, and why are we striving for it? Do we know what it looks like to depend on Christ? What is at the foundation of our relationship with Christ, and what does spiritual formation look like in our lives? So if uh, you were pre-prepared, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, we are going to be in 1 Kings, starting in chapter 17, right in verse 1. And we are going to be looking at the prophet Elijah, who in the New Testament is considered one of the greatest heroes of the faith. But it's important to remember that he had actually a very difficult calling and a very difficult ministry journey. So starting in 1 Kings 17... 17 verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This is the word of the Lord. So this is our first introduction to Elijah in the scriptures, and we see him delivering a very disruptive message to a very wicked king. He basically has to tell King Ahab, that there is going to be drought in the land for the next three years. And you can imagine how unpopular that would make someone in an agrarian-based economy. 
King Ahab is a man who is known for his wickedness. Him and his wife Jezebel are remembered and recorded in the scriptures for their incredible levels of cruelty and idolatry. Their particular brand of worship is focused around the foreign god Baal. And it is believed that Baal or Baal, depending on how you pronounce it, that their iteration of worship for him is that he is a god of water and of earth and of growth and fertility. And Elijah comes before this very wicked king and tells him that the almighty God, Yahweh, has declared that there will be no rain. That the faith Ahab has placed in this foreign lesser God will not be tolerated. Elijah is basically saying that his God is bigger than Ahab's God and that this is going to be disastrous for Ahab. And because Elijah's message from God would not only make him incredibly unpopular, but would also put his life in danger, God tells Elijah to leave. And not just to leave, he tells Elijah to hide. God tells Elijah to go to the Kareth Ravine and to stay there and dwell there while God provides for his most basic needs. And as far as we know, as far as we see in the biblical record, Elijah is told nothing else except where to go and that God's going to provide for him. That's all he has to go on. And the name that the place God takes him is not inconsequential. Kareth means to cut away or to cut in the cutting place. It may be because the ravine was cut uh, cut out into rocks. It may speak of the fact that it's cut away or it's tucked away, but Kareth is an isolated place. And this is where God leads Elijah. As far as we know, Elijah is very alone. There is no one but him and God and a few ravens that bring him food. And Elijah may be hiding from Ahab, but Kareth is a place where he cannot hide from himself and where he cannot hide from God. And one thing that is particularly significant about Kareth in this story is Elijah's water source. It's a brook. The Kareth Brook is historically recorded as being an intermittent seasonal stream. It's not a lake. It's not a rushing river. It is a small, still brook. And God has just declared three years of drought over the land. It is not going to rain or dew. There is no water that is going to be collecting in this brook. Once it's gone, it's gone. So God brings Elijah, a man called to be his prophet, to the cutting place. His life is in danger, and Elijah is hidden and isolated. He's drinking from a finite brook that is slowly drying up before his eyes in the middle of a drought, and he's being fed by birds that the law he lives by says are unclean. He is in a place of utter helplessness. He is totally reliant on God. And it's really important that we remember that Elijah has no idea how long he's going to be there. He is taking this one day at a time. And when your life's in danger, one day at a time at the beginning might be okay. But I can imagine watching that brook slowly dry up, not knowing when this is going to end, not knowing what's going to happen next. And then all of a sudden, the image of relying and depending on God becomes a whole lot harder And yet this is the place that God took Elijah. And at Kareth, Elijah learns probably one of the hardest lessons that humans are ever going to learn. That is utter dependency on God in a very real and visceral way. 
that it is God alone who can sustain us. It takes an immense amount of trust and obedience. And Elijah does move on from Kareth in 1 Kings 17, when we uh, get to verses 7 and onward. It says that sometimes later, the brook did dry up because there had been no rain. And then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, and it said, go to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. And it says, so he went up and he went to Zarephath. So once again, we have God speak to Elijah who calls him to go to a place, maybe not as much of a hidden place, but it's still off the beaten track. And God, when he gets there, will ensure that Elijah's most basic needs are met. In this case, Elijah is going to be fed by a widow that God has already kind of preordained to be there for him. And once again, Elijah just moves in obedience And the name here is also significant. Zarephath means a forge or a smelter. The name has the connotation of being refined and reworked and molded and shaped. And while it is not a place of isolation like Kareth, it is still a place where Elijah is hidden from Ahab and where he once again needs to rely on God. And these names are significant. The order they happen in is significant. After God does a cutting away in the cutting place, after that isolation, Elijah is moved to a place of being molded and shaped and worked. And this is where we see the beginning parts of Elijah's ministry. We learn very quickly that the widow that God has put there, she actually doesn't have anything. She is starving. Her and and her son are starving. And Elijah actually becomes a conduit of God's power And you see this amazing miracle of an overabundance of oil so that this woman and her son and Elijah can eat. At the end of chapter 17, this widow and her son, the son becomes sick and he actually dies and Elijah brings him back to life with God's power. And then at the very end of this journey of Kareth and Zarephath, you have the widow who says, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth and is true. It's this beautiful record. It's the scriptures recording and affirming Elijah's calling that he is a man of God. And then we move in to 1 Kings 18. The story of Elijah continues to unfold. It's three years later and he is going back to Ahab to confront him, but I just want to sit on that detail for one second. It is three years later. Elijah has been gone for three years in Kareth, in the cutting place, in Zarephath, the place where he is being forged. And in the entirety of this time, he is relying solely on God to sustain him and meet his needs, not knowing what's going to happen one day from the next, just waiting to be called back in front of a king who wants him dead. And it is only after these three years that God does call him to King Ahab and Jezebel. And if you know the story of Elijah, this is where it starts getting like really famous and big and loud. Because Elijah goes to Ahab and he has this triumphant moment on Mount Carmel. He defeats 400 prophets of Baal and he calls down fire from heaven on an altar that's been submerged in water. It is an amazing moment of God's power demonstrated through Elijah. In fact, if I asked you about the life of Elijah, like if I said, oh, you know, what do you remember of his life? You probably remember this moment more than anything. This is a dis... Sorry, excuse me. I need my tea. Usually I don't actually need anything. I do this morning. <laughs> <laughs> 
This is a decisive victory moment on Mount Carmel where God appears, he shows up in power, and Elijah performs a miraculous work. But before Elijah ever got to this place, to this moment, really it's a moment of victory, Elijah is called to a hidden place. This moment is preceded by three years of trust and obedience and dependence. Mount Carmel doesn't happen without Kareth. It doesn't happen without Zarephath, without the cutting away, without the molding. These times of hiddenness in Elijah's life become integral to him living out the calling that God has put on his life. And this principle of hiddenness, this learning dependency on God, this cutting away of self and giving it all to God, it's not exclusive to Elijah. You see it with Jacob, you see it with Moses, David, Daniel, Paul, Times where they had to learn to wait to be hidden by God while he did a work in their life. We know little of what is ever done in these time periods for some of the people I mentioned because it is such a private thing they experience and yet it is a significant time in their lives and it's a significant amount of time in their lives. I mean, I think of, of Joseph who spent years in slavery and servitude serving an Egyptian family faithfully faithfully, only to be accused of a crime he did not commit and winds up in prison for years. And we know that the story of Joseph ends well. And sometimes I think we focus on that. It just becomes this, this line of, oh, God does amazing things from hard circumstances. And that is true. But let's have a little empathy with Joseph for a minute because he had no idea how his story was going to end when he got thrown in prison. He didn't know that God was going to show up for him. He didn't know how his story was going to end as he spends some of uh, many years of his life in a dark prison being entirely forgotten by the world. He just had to trust. And, when, and you do see God use him in amazing ways as his life is refined in this hidden place. Jesus, when he was on this earth, he spent 30 years living an ordinary human life. And even when he started his public ministry, he frequently took himself away from the crowds. He sought out hidden places. And beyond his own life, Jesus told his disciples to do the same thing. He called them into quietness and hiddenness. You see this beautiful rhythm of balancing out public life, scene life, even ministry life, with periods of quietness and formation. We as, as individuals, as Christians, and as members of the church of God, we can be so focused on the public aspects of our life. We can be so focused on the external things, things that earn us success or praise. And that could be even whatever kind of ministry that we're trying to work in. And even when we have the intentions of doing it for Christ, we can still do that. And again, I don't think there's anything wrong with good or godly work receiving attention as long as it doesn't come at the cost of neglecting the, the heart-level spiritual formation that we are called into, the work that Christ is concerned with. I think that we need to reclaim the value of hiddenness. We need to become less consumed with being recognized and seen and open ourselves up to finding God in hidden places and allowing him to find us and reveal who we are supposed to be. 
We need to be more interested in what God is trying to cut away in our lives, how he is trying to mold us and refine us. And I don't think this process is going to look like Elijah's. You can breathe a sigh of relief for that. I don't think we're going to be called to spend years in isolation, away from everything being fed by birds. But there are many passages of Scripture that talk about the importance of, st of stillness and hiddenness and waiting. Are we seeking and cultivating times and spaces for hiddenness, where there is only us and God and the desire to learn about him to then, and depend on him more fully? Are we making space to read and really hear his word, to seek and discern the voice of God and to hide away in him, to cultivate deep, rich, private prayer lives where we need to discern those things that God is trying to cut away from our lives? I think about the world around us, the natural world, and I think about all the things that happen in hidden spaces. Seeds and plants, they germinate in darkness. A baby develops inside its mother's body when you can't see it. The skyscraper we see, it sits on a hidden foundation so below the ground. Athletes and performers, they can spend their entire lives training for one single moment in a place of hiddenness. In a culture that values prominence, celebrity, recognition, and public affirmation, can we reclaim the value of hidden spaces? Can we ask God to take us to our own metaphorical carif? Can we ask God what he needs to cut out of our lives, what noise he needs to break through? Are we pursuing the path of Christ with humility, learning how to not only become more like Christ, but also to depend on him more and more? Are we willing to let go of our pursuits to be noticed and praised and appreciated and instead seek after God and him and him alone? Has God called you into a season of hiddenness, a place of quiet service, an area of your life where you may be forced to take a step back from your own plans and your own dreams and your own goals so that you can learn dependence on God? Is God taking you to a place where he wants to cut away at you? Is he asking you to cut certain things from your life? Maybe you're here this morning and you're at a place where you recognize your need to find space and time and places to see God so that he can see Christ formed in you and your life in profound ways. Maybe you realize the image that you are trying to project and display to the world is not backed up by the character formation that you know you need. One of the most heartbreaking lines, bringing it back to the Mars Hill podcast, is that we live in a world that favors character and platforming leaders. Of, sorry, sorry, we live in a world that we platform leaders because of their charisma, where we care very little about their character. And that is heartbreaking to hear. What steps do we need to take to be hidden with God? Something that I'm trying to do in my own life, and sometimes I succeed and sometimes I don't, and I need to work a little harder on it, but something that I'm trying to pray is actually a prayer that I heard from a Christian meditation, and it's this prayer. Lord, 
Hide me in the palm of your hand today, that I may know your provision and your comfort. And let that be enough, God. Help me learn and be satisfied in this place. Lord, if I am too attached to being seen, let me surrender myself to you. Let me hide in you and teach me the deep things as I hide in your presence. And I know that is more just a gateway prayer to get to a hidden place, but that's where my heart is at, is just needing to pray for the desire to hide in the presence of God. Maybe that's something you can challenge yourself to pray. Lord, if I am too attached to being seen, let me surrender myself to you. Let me hide myself in you and teach me the deep things as I hide in your presence. I know we only looked at it a little bit of it this morning, but the story of Elijah, there are these incredible moments of God using Elijah, great, big, spiritual moments of Elijah fulfilling his calling of being so bold as God's prophet. But those are tempered with seasons where deeply spiritual work happens in Elijah in hidden places. And I think there is something so beautiful in this mystical rhythm of God continually calling us back into hidden places and spaces to just be with him. In a few minutes, um, we're going to be moving to the Lord's table, which is a public symbol of a deeply spiritual work. It celebrates the culmination of Jesus' public ministry, his death on the cross, but it is also an incredibly personal gift that Christ's sacrifice represents. In many ways, the Lord's table is both deeply collective, but also deeply personal and private. And as we enter this time, my prayer this morning is that we can meditate on where Christ may be forming us, where he might be calling us to hide in him, where we get a sense of what he might be trying to cut away from our lives as we learn to depend on him and all that he's done. If you'll bow your heads in prayer with me. Father God, I thank you that you are a God found in hidden places. I thank you that you are a God that looks at us and sees us and does not allow us to stay where we are, that, that calls us to be chipped away at, that you want to do a work where you cut in. You want to do a work where we are molded and shaped by you, God. We thank you that you do that work, that you are, are faithful to meet us in hidden places. God, my prayer this morning is that each of us, as individuals, as your church, God, that we will, we will find our Kareth and our Zarephath where you are calling us to go and to hide and to be in your presence, God, and, and to learn that lesson of dependency on you. God, may we be so aware of the ways in which we pursue independence from you, God, and may you just help us recognize how we have to just push that, that mindset and, and the things we might be acquiring to try to get that independence and security, God. May you, may you strip us so that we can see how we can depend on you. God, we thank you for the story of Elijah. I, I pray that as you called him into ministry, God, as you call all of us into, you know, private and personal and, and corporate ministry, God, just that we will follow you with trust and obedience. Learning to, to rely on you for every single step we take. And God, as we move to the Lord's table this morning, may we just be reminded of the sacrifice 
that you made, of all that you have given so that we can have this relationship, this formative experience, this transformation with you, God. May we just be so aware of that this morning. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.